0: You're listening to Like Flip Radio, part of the Revelations Radio Network.
1: Live from the Café de Keske, with the best lasagna in Istanbul, welcome to Like Flint Radio. This is Cliff Garner, and introducing your other hosts, we have Andy.
2: Hello. Chrissy.
1: And TK. G'day.
2: G'day. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> that,
3: was that was great. So so how are things going there, men? You say it's the best lasagna in Istanbul. Oh, right? yeah, yeah,
1: they're, they're really good. The only thing that might be a bit of a drawback is instead of a... Real ham, they use turkey ham. But it's quite good. I mean, they put it in the boat and they cover it with meat sauce and then they mm-hmm. uh, bake it with cheese on top. Very mm-hmm. nice.
3: Very good. Oh, it's they delicious. have turkey ham and turkey.
4: Huh. <laughs> and we all know you've got to have joking. some
3: turkey in. And,
4: and yeah, you
0: was asking
4: to that next corner of the market. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. That goes back to Christmas, <laughs> no, just... you know.
3: Say that again, Cliffy. That goes
1: back oh, to... Christopher Columbus. See, over here, uh, Turkey is called Hindi. It's not called Turkey. Huh. Uh, Turkey and Turkey is Hindi. And that's because when Columbus actually sailed to uh, the New World, had his calculations been correct, he would have been in India. But he miscalculated how the Earth was. So, <laughs> I mean, there was a whole continent in there. So uh, he was messed up. And, uh, but as far as he was concerned, he was in, in India. So they sold the birds to the Turks and called it Hindi. And the reason that uh, in English we don't call it Hindi is because the Spanish were the ones that were importing them all, and Spain and, and England were at war, so they were saying, well, we got it from the Turks. Hmm.
3: And so that's why they called Turkey. Yeah,
1: that's- that's why uh, uh, Turkey over here, they call it Hindi. why in America and the English-speaking world, we call it Turkey. That's
0: uh, interesting. It's really, a eh? really
1: strange little thing. I thought that out uh, when I moved here.
0: That is
4: interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Audie, I just wanted to say...
3: Oh, no. Not again. <laughs> do you know what people call <laughs> Turkey
4: in South Africa? Kalkun. There's a new word for you guys. Kalkun.
3: Oh, okay. Cool. <laughs> we're doing well.
4: Hey, um, do Cliff,
0: we're just about yeah. to play your Flint Flake. And we spoke mostly about Agrippa. Um, And in the next segment, we're going to get to D. But in this Flint Flake, you discussed a little bit about your personal testimony and your dabbling in astrology. And you even mentioned the term Gnosticism, you know. Yeah. And as I asked you permission to leave that stuff in there, I thought it was really interesting. So I hope our listeners will get something out of this because they'll realize that, you know, even though one might dabble in these things, you can come out of them as you have, you know. But on a lighter note, when you mentioned the anti-Kythera machine, um, Mm -hmm. I said, maybe it's better off being called not a computer but a machine that makes computations, and then when I listened to it back, I realized, well, hang on, isn't that all a computer really is? (laughs) Uh,
1: Yes, no, Uh, that's the thing, Uh, what, what do you call it? And it is isn't material. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Uh, although uh, we can have them do things that uh, those old ones couldn't do. Yeah. I mean, but you think about it, so is an abacus. And, uh,
0: yeah. You, yeah. Y- you mentioned that in the, in the actual flake. So anyway, I just thought it was funny because when I played it back, I realized, hang on, maybe I shouldn't have said that. It sort of made me sound a bit doughy. But anyway, <laughs> if you're ready there, Andy, we'll go to Cliff's flake and we can talk to him a bit about it afterwards if you like. Sounds good. What, are you, this week? what are, are, you are you reading this week? All righty, well, here we are again with. Cliff Garner, and we're doing his segment, What Are You Reading, this week, and if you've been following our Flint Flake show, you will realize that this is part three of a book called The Occult Philosophy in the Elizabethan Age by Francis Yates. A thoroughly interesting book, very deep, um, very heavy, weighty material, and Cliff is been doing his best to bring it to the fore for us to understand in you know the 20 to 40 minute segments that we do for our flint flakes but um, I got a feeling that we may even be doing more on this book yet in fact one of the things that has come up between Cliff and I about let's talk about Henry Cornelius Agrippa to start with but also with John Dee is their statements of faith, if you will, you know, were these guys pure occultists and therefore to be condemned or is there more to the story? And I'm keenly interested because I know that many of us are black and white thinkers and believers and things like this are good to make us think and good for our brains and also to help us tune to, well, what is the truth? Now, I know many of our listeners, including myself, will say, Yes, we know that the truth is to be found within the scriptures, and I have no argument with that. In fact, that's my stance on everything. Well, at least I try to make it my stance on everything in, in everything that I do. <clears throat> but we go to this different age, this different time, and we try and understand where these people were coming from. And part of what we're going to discuss today and I do apologize for the long introduction because Cliff is with us, is to draw some of that out. So I'm going to hand you over to Cliff now, and I think we're going to kick off with Henry Cornelius Agrippa. I hope that's correct, Cliff.
1: Yes, yes. Agrippa had a uh, a work that he had done um, prior to the publishing of uh, the Occult Philosophy, and it was called the uh, uh De, de, de incertitudine vanit- et vanitatete scientiarium et artium atque excellentia verbi de declam- <clears throat> declamatio invectiva. And this is on the uncertainty and vanity of the arts and sciences in an invective declamation.
0: I was going to say, that's easy for you to say. Oh,
1: I wish it were. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, but yeah, my Latin's generally pretty good <laughs> and, and, and what he what he spells out in this is uh, is how everything is vanity except for knowledge of Jesus. And that is his core belief. this is the core belief going in, this is his core belief going out of all his studies in the in the Kabbalah in hermeticism and everything else. Now, what we have uh, up until the time of the uh, the Enlightenment is is a situation in which science and technology uh, and numerology, uh, astronomy, and astrology, all these things are just all a big mix, and the the there are very few works on practical science as we know it today. Now, is God condemning all? Practices that uh, involve technology and science. Well, no, he's not. Does he condemn all things involving knowledge through philosophy, which does lead to knowledge? Uh, and when we look at uh, the treatments of uh, Aristotle uh, by the Church uh, over the years, uh, you have to say no. Although, with some of the others, we get, get into some problems. But certain, certain of the Neoplatonists were not contrary to Christian theology, but some of them were. And uh, when, what we see is as the church progressed through the Middle Ages, uh, you see very little science and technology. And Part of this was, was a bias of the Roman world, in which uh, the Roman world was um, very happy with leaving it all alone and uh, not, not improving life all that much with technology. Uh, there were very few things that, uh, that came from elsewhere or through cross-cultural uh, meetings, but there were some. Uh, for example, uh, the, the stirrup uh, came from uh, probably the, uh, the steps. it uh, was probably through the Huns or possibly the Avars, but one of, the, one of those Turkic people that uh, came around uh, during the Middle Ages, uh, early Middle Ages, possibly even the Hungarians. We don't know. So that's, that's one of the things. We don't even know when the stirrup came, you know, which is how, how earth-shattering the, uh, the people of the time thought it was. Uh, there were small improvements like to the plow, but the, there really wasn't a whole lot. It was pretty static technologically. And uh, so when we see things like the astrolabe and the, uh, that anti kythera device, which is really a glorified astrolabe, it, it uh, does several other functions uh, other than charting stars and being able to do horoscopes. But it could also probably calculate uh, lunar eclipses and stuff of this sort. Uh, which you know, you think about it, uh, that, that's just amazing. You know, a device does that. Yes. You know, when people say it's a small computer, I, I have the feeling that certain people are trying to blow it up as uh, like this was the controlling device for uh, some prehistoric nuclear weaponry or something. Right. But, you, you, you know the type. Yeah, uh, I
0: do. I do. Not a computer, but a uh, an an item that can make computations might be a better description.
1: Actually, yeah, it would probably be better described in that way. Mm. I mean, you, you think about it. Uh, one of those ab- abacuses mm. uh, would be uh, a type of uh, computer. Sure, and yeah. uh, and they truly are, and they're quite sophisticated in their own way. Yeah. So it's not like uh, the ancients uh, didn't have a, a lot of intelligence and mm-hmm. uh, things like that. I, I, I'm one of the defenders of that idea, that they are able to even do things like build the pyramids. Indeed. <laughs> which, Myself which, included. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, well, you know, when you see the... People in the eastern islands uh, walking the uh, those giants. Yes. Uh, that tells you everything you need to know. I mean, everybody's like, well, they needed a UFO to do it.
0: Yeah, levitation.
1: Oh, yeah, right. Well, <laughs> no, they're, they're, if they have legs, they can walk. <laughs> that's it. So, so that's, uh, that's the thing. They, they underestimate uh, the primitive people, and I think that's a terrible thing to do. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we shouldn't, I, I think, uh, overdo it. Uh, I'm, I, I probably should take that back. I probably shouldn't say overdo it. I, sh- I think we should probably not not impress upon them our own projection of our own thoughts of who we are and who we think they were because we know who we are.
0: Agreed. I couldn't agree with, with that statement any anymore. That's brilliant
1: that's That's where we really get into problems with looking at people in different times and right. and that's that's one of the things that i'm trying to iron out over on this yeah and with with Agrippa uh, his his faith is uh one of the keys he was one of the one of the key people in the the Reformation uh he was not a lightweight and uh the things he had to say uh were were often pretty much in in line with what we believe today and uh that's one of the, the things here. Uh, another is that, like I say, the uh, the science of the old times. There's some problems with uh, you know all of that. You know, you, you, uh, and and these uh, these connections, uh, are, you know, they're they're going back to old writing like Galen and uh, Vitruvius. You know, for sacred uh, ge- uh, geometry and, yeah, uh, yep. and and using that to build buildings. Going back to uh, Cicero on, uh, on prediction of the future,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which was actually divination. And, and divination, uh, we, we cannot excuse. I mean, that, that is not exactly. a, a permissible uh, practice in any case. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, See, I was an astrologer, and I didn't really practice divination.
0: I did, I did not know you that. You heard what I you. said. Yeah, I did, yeah, yeah.
1: Now, whether or not I would uh, encourage people to do what I did, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think I would. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find it a little uh, questionable, but I was more concerned with the natal aspects of astrology. Right. And I was using that as a psychological thing. Right. Uh, and I was giving people advice that way. I was also doing a, a certain amount of uh, looking into uh, events, after the fact, and uh, a lot of stuff with the nations, uh, because you get national horoscopes. And uh, the, uh, the information on those for, for an astrologer is just incredible. I mean, it's just, um, um, wow. <laughs> you know, that you can, you can actually look at a whole country and what it may do and sometimes be right. So that was what I was into when I was doing astrology. I was more. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they they call it uh, natal. They they also call it uh, the the national charts. That's uh, called mundane astrology. And uh, those things, like I say, it's still it's still a questionable practice, and uh, sure. it, it 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 was far too easy to become obsessed with it.
0: Sure. Absolutely.
1: And and that that is really the danger, and that's that's why I would. I, I am convinced i should not teach people to, to do anything there because it 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 really hung me up for a long time
0: well i mean you and i have known each other for a while and have spoken about a number of things as friends and that and you you, you would know what that my position would be well i would encourage somebody coming uh obsessed if that's the correct term but i would to read god's word and let that oh be yeah a, a absolutely. God, right? so you know that about me but um, yes, no, I didn't know that about you, um, Cliff, but, but how did you come out of that? Like, when did when did you...
1: I, I think I grew out of it more than anything. Uh, now, there were other problems. My my uh, personal uh, uh, beliefs was, I, I fell a little bit away from Christianity, uh, but I, I, I went more into the direction of a, a sort of modified Gnosticism, I suppose you would say. Right. And, and I uh, had some problems getting over that. Uh, partly because of just me, and partly because of uh, certain ideas that I retained from that, mm-hmm. and kept uh, kept in while I was trying to deal with realizing that Christianity was true. Yeah. And I, I had uh, already been baptized uh, even uh, okay. by that point. Yeah, yeah. I, I was flying right for a little while, but uh, I really got hung up on uh, certain ideas.
0: Um, can I can I bring you back to Agrippa himself? Because I've I've got a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is Jesus to be first and last anyway. i think you we said. Yeah, that oh yeah, he he was very clear about
1: that. Mm. The very clear, and, uh, and and that's the thing. He he didn't mess around with that. I mean, his faith uh, was without question. Now now with D D did some things that you have to. He's going to have to account for.
0: <laughs> yeah, because yeah. what I want what I want to ask you about Agrippa was that mm-hmm. in this book it said that him and his he, he and his friends closely closely followed the writings of Luther, right? And it even goes yeah. on to say that many of them became um, went
1: on to become Lutheran Protestants. Um, oh yeah. So he, he was a Lutheran. He was uh, a Lutheran. was well, he? Well, okay. he? actually, he uh, he kind of was in between Luther and uh, and Calvin.
0: Right. Okay. And,
1: and he was uh, one of those people that was in between there, and uh, kind of even probably made it easier for the two to to uh, uh, interact on the on the continent. Right. Yeah. And, and he's he's an interesting guy. He really is. I, I I've I've always been kind of fascinated with him. And and D. Uh, oh man. <laughs> Uh, he, now he's a little bit harder to justify, though. But, but you know, the thing is, is that he actually does does say a lot of the same things. Right. Uh, although uh, one of the thing about D is he he was really big on predicting. Right. Yes. Yes. And that uh, that's going to be something he's going to have to account for. Yeah. Uh, in, in the at the end. Now, now that with the grip of th- only three of the books out of the four are certainly his the uh, of the occult. Philosophy, uh, although I might not even get to that point again. Um, the, but the the fourth one, uh, it's it's questioned is who as to who wrote it.
0: Um, the one the one I wanted to ask you about, um, it, you know, because I've been reading bits and pieces of the actual book that you're going through, mm-hmm. and I'll read you this segment. And um, it says, in 1524, Agrippa went to France, where he had many friends. He, he republished in 1526, one of his two famous books, the De Venetate Scientiarum, this book, yeah, argues yeah. That, yeah, this book argues that all man's knowledge is vain, all science is empty, including
1: this occult sciences. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly it. I, I, I'm glad you found that because I'll <laughs> get it. <laughs> But that that really is the uh, the heart and soul of Agrippa. Agrippa, for Agrippa, Jesus is the first and the last, and he is the ultimate authority. The Bible is the ultimate authority uh, as far as explaining what Jesus is about. Right. So he he is really quite uh, uh, orthodox as far as it goes. Uh, he 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 doesn't. Uh, Place the these philosophical ideas above the Bible. He puts them below, mm-hmm. and, and I think he's got the priority there correct. And like I say, what, what happens over time? By the time we get to Swedenborg, we see a lot of the occult ideas breaking away from the church. And when we get to the the uh, the Enlightenment, we see atheism come out in kind of its own glory, you know, and yeah. and uh, and that's that's really. The point where science becomes aggressively antagonistic to religion, and particularly Christianity. Yeah, that doesn't happen until then. And we're looking, we're looking at uh, the the French Revolution and after. Uh, now you you do have people getting into uh, deism. They're starting to fall away from the faith. The deism in the seventeen hundreds, but prior to that, you really didn't have people who were. Uh, true pagans uh, coming out and things of this sort, that just didn't happen. Uh, People were either they were Christian, as a good Christian or a bad Christian. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And uh, if they didn't believe, uh, often their disbelief was tied to a particular emotion or a particular incident or things of that nature.
0: Well, I, I, f- I also find that um, with Agrippa, he was also well known in in England, and oh the, yeah, an interesting thing that um, I find that I find interesting if people are interested in royalty and things of this nature is that Catherine of Aragon uh, actually asked him to defend her in her case with Henry VIII, who was trying to um, oh yeah divorce her. Yeah, yeah. So he true. must have been highly considered. You know, not just on the continent itself, but also in England. And you know, this is what this is telling me.
1: Well, well, one of the things about uh, about Agrippa, and and also uh, well, Georgie, uh, who was uh, called in for the other side, uh, that that he was the Italian expert on the Kabbalah and uh, and Hebrew Hebrew law and jurisprudence. Because that, that's uh,
0: that's the point, isn't it? The yeah, the, they were going to um, make the judgment um based upon jewish law of on divorce and because yeah. agrippa was a hebrew scholar right that's why she wanted exactly. him i've got the story correct there haven't i
1: yeah you got it absolutely correct yeah uh, in fact uh, there's a there's a tremendous amount of insight in that because we talked about georgie before yeah and his his role in uh in in henry the eighth's uh divorce and you know here they are they're calling a <laughs> Henry Henry's not yet a Protestant, but he's calling a Catholic from Italy, yes, the, who who's an expert in in all this uh, all this stuff and Hebrew law, Hebrew language, yes, uh, and, and the Kabbalah, you yes. know, to to yeah. determine whether or not he was able to find legal grounds to divorce her, yes, uh, which is yeah, it's just it's just remarkable uh, how this is working out, and, K- and Catherine who is a Catholic, <laughs> yes. is asking Henry Agrippa, who is a Protestant, <laughs> to represent her. Absolutely
0: fascinating. I'm glad you brought it, that that out as well, yes.
1: You know, you just can't make this stuff up.
0: <laughs> no, I know. I know. Yates, yeah. says, Yates says, Erasmus, Luther, and Agrippa exhibit different facets of the spiritual force, which is breaking down the past and ushering in the future. Now, Mm -hmm. to put Agrippa in the company of Luther and Erasmus, um, that would have an effect that we probably are still um, feeling somewhat today. Oh, um, absolutely. makes this guy super important. So,
1: you know... The the thing about him is, okay, he he actually did uh, bring in some of the... Medicine—that right. uh, was just I'm trying to get that at, was yeah. just science, you know. Okay, okay. As, as far as it goes, but, yeah. but there were philosophical and uh, even theological uh, aspects of it.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, Pico goes into those also.
0: Yes.
1: Uh, in fact, uh, Pico Pico had to uh, to to uh, recant on a couple of them, and and he did. Um, and, and, and where he recanted, it got into where uh, the the person who practices. Uh, the science uh, and arts that they're discussing, uh, which could, could become magical, uh, that person uh, could, in some respect, become uh, more than human, okay? And Pico had to, had to recap that, and uh, for good reason. That was one of those bones of contention in which the church was uh, uh, exactly correct in standing up against it. Now, that said, the Catholic Church was against about anything that uh, you know went against their understanding of what truth was. And we, we know that uh, 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 uh astronomy is not against the Bible. We know that. Uh, right. But at the time, they were treating it as if it were. As such, yeah. Yeah, that, that's where Galileo got in trouble. Um, so, at any rate, the question you asked is a rather specific one. And, and one of the things that, uh, that they, they touch on in the book, and really I wish they, they, uh, that she wrote a little more detail about a lot of this stuff, uh, because it's really a short book, and, and it, hits, it hits some major things, and it's laid the groundwork for a lot of uh, decent research that's come out. Uh, but there, there's still quite a bit uh, that's, that's kind of missing, ask me. But anyway, uh, one of the things that, uh, that uh, Agrippa had done was that he, he had sent to Erasmus a copy of his, uh, the occult philosophy, and he wanted to make sure that he wasn't out of line. And uh, Erasmus uh, was probably the great mind of the time. Uh, he, he was p- above and beyond the others, just like Pico was in his time. Yes, He looked at it as a Christian and said, well, there's some places here where I'd be really leery going, but he said, I don't think that you're out of line as a person. And he confirmed him as a man of faith. And I think that's a, a, a really important uh, distinction to make with Agrippa because we have a harder time doing that with Mr. D., all right, once again, I can
0: see we're out of time, as we usually do, Cliff, we always run out of time, um, and I love spending time with you discussing these topics. So we will take this up next time, so thank you for your time and thank you for letting me be part of your Flint Flake.
1: Oh my pleasure, and good to have you.:
0: Okay, thank you. God bless.
3: Really interesting, but before we discuss that a little bit, it sounds a lot like you're actually in a Greek restaurant with breaking
0: plates.
1: So,
0: yeah. So. Well, it is very close to Greece, so there you go. <laughs> hey,
1: what else could I do? Ah, anyway, but that was
3: cool. That was a, a great segment. But what part was that now? Is it part four or part three? That's,
0: part, I'm losing that's part four. Yeah, it's, it's part four. We do have part five, and then we might move on. Cliff's reading another book that we're going to discuss and,
1: um, yeah. Uh, not well, five. it kind
2: of ties in, but but in kind of a more peripheral way. Uh, really, uh, yeah. Hello.
3: I'm.
2: um, Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. Who's that? Hello. This is Damien. Hi. Yeah. It's Damien from Dun Dong Dingalong in, in New South Wales. Hmm.
4: It sounds very Australian. Yeah.
2: Listen. Someone someone, sent me your contact, because um, you guys are in South Africa, right? Yes.
3: Right, yeah, we in, we're in Cape Town.
2: Sure. Look, this guy sent me this thing, and he called me. A, I'll read this out for you. A babuti. A babuti. Is he having a go at me?
4: No, you're actually pretty safe there, Damien. It's not an insult. Okay.
2: Yeah, it was, well, to be honest with you, it was on my Facebook wall, and he said, Listen, you come round near me again, you have a booty, and I'll smash your face in. So it was pretty aggressive.
4: (laughs) I would think that this guy was was South African, right? Okay, so what does it mean? What what do
2: you think it means? It's a traditional
4: Afrikaans dish, South African dish. It's a bit of mince, and a bit of curry, and a bit of egg, and. What else, some Andy?
3: Raisins in there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, raisins. So Disney, they use a bay leaf in there as well. It's very nice with rice. Here
2: we go. Oh. Well, so, that's, um, I'm a bit happier about that because I was going to send a bunch of bikers around to his place to kick his door in and show him what a babuti really is. But if it's only going to be thrown a pie in their face, I, I think we'll leave him alone. Mm-hmm. The guys are yeah, right drongo, I'm totally, telling you.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, yeah this it is, it is never worth like, solving
3: a huge insult. I have to be honest.
4: Yeah, see, but right, is actually so, very nice, and it's and it's and it's loved in South Africa. So, so it could actually be a compliment.
2: Well, that puts yeah. a whole different. Uh, oh, well, while I've got you on the line, there, um, guys, I want to ask you a couple of questions about that topic you spoke about a while Which back. When was that, Damien? Yeah, um, it was this bloke called Cruz, and um, mm-hmm. he was talking about Kundalini spirit. Yeah, well, uh, i was just wondering if would would it be okay if I just went to my local everyday run of the mill church, or am I going to run into that uh, Kundalini thing? It sounded mm. like a bit of martial arts, and I could take it up with this guy on my Facebook wall. I'll go to the church, and they could teach me this Kundalini thing, and then I'll go around and kick mm-hmm. his door in, and then say, "Look, who's a babooty now, mate?" <laughs>
4: That was ELO, Electric Light Orchestra with sweet-talking women. Yeah, be careful of sweet-talking people. Their motives might not always be pure. My name is Cruzy and you're with me here again on Cruzy's Discernment Corner. Today we're going to have a look at Joyce Meyer, one of the most famous and influential Christian teachers today. And I just want to read something from one of her book covers. Um, Joyce Meyer is the author of the bestsellers, Beauty for Ashes, The Root of Rejection, and Battlefield of the Mind, and has taught on emotional healing and related subjects in meetings all over the country. Her Life in the Word radio broadcast is aired on 200 stations nationwide. Her 30-minute Life in the Word with Joyce Meyer television program is broadcast throughout the United States and Canada. She also travels extensively, conducting Life in the Word conferences, as well as speaking in local churches. Now, I just want to say right off the bat, what I'm doing this for tonight, it's not about Joyce Meyer's salvation. That's a matter between her and God. But what we should rightly judge is a doctrine. And, you know, she's one of those preachers that got this, you know, seeker-friendly mindset and this almost narcissistic gospel I just want to quote something that she said, just to give you an idea of where this mindset comes from. She was studying the atonement, and this is what she said about it. You know something? I liked myself before I started studying on this, because that's something God had just worked in me in the last seven years. And I didn't start out liking myself. I didn't like myself at all. But I'm telling you, after I've studied this message, I'm so excited about me that I can hardly know what to do. Now, I just want to ask one thing, Joyce. How do you study the atonement and Jesus' sacrifice and come out excited about yourself? How about Jesus and the price he paid on the cross? I think this shows what sort of mindset these people have in the seeker-friendly, narcissistic-type gospel churches. And uh, we're going to look at a few other things uh, she has said, and we're going to hold it up to the word. Compare it to the word and see if it measures up. Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah 8 verse 20. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it's because they have a special revelation. No, wait, 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 that's wrong. Let's try again. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it's because they have a special anointing. No, wait, okay, let's get it right this time to the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. The Bible also says in Psalms 119 verse 160, thy word is true from the beginning. God's word is true. If you have a different opinion from the Bible, then you are wrong and the Bible is right. If I have a different opinion, I am wrong and the Bible is right. First thing we're going to look at is how does she get a doctrine? Let's listen to this clip.
5: Do you know something a large majority of the church really doesn't even know? Honestly and truly, they really don't even know. Well, you're going to know when this night's over. The Bible can't even find any way to explain this. Not really. That's why you've got to get it by revelation. There are no words to explain what I'm telling you. I've got to just trust God that he's putting it into your spirit like he put it into mine.
4: Yeah, so we just got to trust you that your revelation is correct Right, no, I don't think so If it's not in the Bible, sorry Joyce, then I'm not going for it Let's look at a few more examples of her revelation knowledge
5: Well, here comes Jesus into hell Now, I don't know what hell looks like But God gave me a few ideas It's hot Fire hot, but at the same time, it's cold and clammy. That's kind of different, isn't it? Fire hot, but cold and clammy.
4: Okay, so there's no scripture for what she said there. This is just purely what she's made up or what she believes she has got by revelation. I'm sorry, we're going to throw that out. Let's listen how Joyce exposes herself as a word of faith teacher. I
6: got fire in my belly tonight because I know, I know, I know that there's power in life in right words, that words are containers for power. And I don't care what kind of a mess you've got. I am begging you tonight to stop talking about it and start talking about what the word says and what you can have make yourself a list do some work do some homework make sure you've got a scripture to back up every one of your confessions we're not talking about some magic goofy you know weird new age thing i'm talking about doing what the bible says calling those things that be not as though they are prophesying to the dead dry bones in your life oh you dry bones hear the word of the lord maybe you need to get your checkbook out and say oh you checkbook hear the word of the lord you are not going to stay empty all of your life Oh, uh, somebody says, well, this is just too weird for me. Well, then just stay broke. <laughs> what you're doing's not working. You listen to me, checkbook. The first 10% of everything that goes into you is going to God's work, and you are going to be full to overflowing. And I am going to be blessed, and I am going to be a blessing.
4: Now, that's that same word of faith uh, nonsense that you can hear on TBN. You know what she says? This is not some kind of a new age thing she's teaching. Yes, that actually is. That is exactly what she is teaching. You know what they do? These guys always pull God a little bit lower than he should be. And they always put man a little bit higher than he should be. You know, it's, it's sort of trying to equate man with God in this kind of theology. You know, one of the verses that they use to prove this kind of theology is Romans four seventeen, And she quoted it there as well, but let's read it in context. Romans four seventeen: As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations. Before him who has believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were. It is God that calleth things which be not as though they were. Not us. You cannot take the verse and just apply it to yourself if that's the wrong context. Sorry, Joyce. Wrong.
5: The devil thought he had him. The devil thought he'd won. Oh, they were having the biggest party that had ever been had. They had my Jesus in the floor. And they were standing on his back, jumping up and down, laughing. And he had become sin. Don't you think that God was pacing, wanting to put a stop to what was going on? All the hosts of hell were upon him. Upon him. Up on him. The angels are in agony. All the creation is groaning. All the host of hell was upon him. Up on him. They got on him. They got him down in the floor and got on him. And they were laughing and mocking. Ah ha 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 ha. You trusted God and look where you ended up. You thought he'd save you and get you off that cross, he didn't, ha ha
4: ha. Chapter and verse, please. Hmm. No chapter and verse for that, she's just purely made that up. Uh, First thing to notice about that is Jesus being tortured in hell. As you would know, she believes that Jesus paid on the cross and in hell for our sins. Second problem there is demons tormenting Jesus as if they are running hell that is just blatantly wrong. Hell was made for them and they will be tormented for their wickedness in hell. They don't run hell. It's not their own little private party place. Jesus did not pay the price in hell. The Bible clearly says, Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Our sins were paid for and done. Do you know what this is? It's a different gospel. She's preaching a different gospel and she's preaching a different Jesus. This is not Jesus of the Bible.
5: He could have helped himself up until the point where he said, I commend my spirit into your hands. At that point, he couldn't do nothing for himself anymore. He had become sin. He was no longer the Son of God. He was sin.
4: It's true. Jesus became sin in the sense that he carried our sins on himself, he did not physically become sin. God, by definition, cannot have any sin in him. He also cannot stop being God, and he can't, cannot stop being the Son of God. That is just pure blasphemy and heresy.
5: Do you know something? The minute that blood sacrifice was accepted, Jesus was the first human being that was ever born again. Now, it was sealed. I mean, it happened when he was in heaven.
4: Jesus, the first human being that got saved, basically, and born again? No, I don't think so. That's the same nonsense that Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagen, Fred Price, Charles Caps, Benny In, Jan Crouch. All those people are spewing out. You know the born again Jesus. Who needs to be saved? Me and you. We are sinners. Who does not need to be saved and born again? Jesus. He is God. He never stopped being God when he was so-called in hell, according to Joyce Meyer. He can never stop being God. This is just pure blasphemy. It's a different gospel. She's preaching a different Jesus. The other thing that she's teaching here is that Jesus was a mere man. It's sort of almost an Arianist heresy, where they basically take away the divinity of Jesus, and what they're basically saying is that Jesus became God again when he got born again, which is just blatantly wrong. Let's remind ourselves again of Isaiah 8 verse 20. To the law and to the testimony. If they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no light in them. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4, For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus, which he is preaching, whom we have not preached, or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel, which ye have not accepted, he might as well be with him. It's another gospel, it's another Jesus.
5: Sunday morning! Sunday morning! Here comes the sun. Sunday morning! God gets himself together. Ho oh, ho! Justice has been met. Somehow the thing's been taken care of. And oh, God gets his voice together. And he hollers out three words. And they go roaring through the universe and entering the gates of hell. He said, it is enough! It is enough!
4: Now this is Joyce again preaching the born again Jesus uh, and that Jesus paid the price in hell. You know, Jesus paid the price on the cross. Um, the Bible clearly says, Jesus said, it is finished. Another verse we can go to, let me just find it here, 1 Peter 2 verse 24, who his own self bear our sins in his own body and on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye were healed. says clearly, he paid for our sins, mine and your sins, in his body on the tree. And another thing that they teach here is also the spiritual death of Jesus, which is heresy. And you know, When we hold these things up to the word, they just do not stand up to the word. At the end of that clip, Joyce Meyer says, God said out of heaven, it is enough, it is enough. She's adding to the word of God. The Bible nowhere says that God said that. She's making it up. Now we either got to take her word or we got to reject it. Based on what the Bible says to us or the evidence that we see from the Bible, we cannot know that he said that. So we got to reject that.
5: Was I a poor, miserable sinner? I am not poor. I am not miserable. And I am not a sinner that is alive from the pit of hell. That is what I were. And if I still was, then Jesus died in vain. I'm going to tell you something, folks. I didn't stop sinning until I finally got it through my sick head. I wasn't a sinner anymore. And the religious world thinks that's heresy and they want to hang you for it. But the Bible says that I'm righteous, and I can't be righteous and be a sinner at the same time.
4: You know what Joyce is doing here? She's showing us that she hasn't got a clue what imputed righteousness or the substitutionary atonement means. She's totally clueless, and she should not even be teaching a primary school class. Now, we can answer this with two verses. I'll just take two verses. 1 John 1 verse 8. The Apostle John says... If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 Timothy 1.15, um, this is Paul, after being saved, where he proclaims to be the chief of sinners. I think, you know, let's go with uh, John and with Paul, and let's take the word over Joyce's word. So what have we seen today? We've seen that Joyce Meyer preaches a false Jesus a Jesus that had to be born again, a Jesus that was not God in the flesh, and at one point stopped being God, and then became God again. It's a total confusing doctrine. She has a false view of atonement. She has a false view of imputed righteousness, and she preaches a different gospel. You know, it's not up to me or to you to judge her salvation. I hope and I pray that she is saved and that she comes to a better understanding of the Bible before she actually preaches to so many people because she can do a terrible disservice to many, many thousands of people. I hope you enjoyed your time with me today and uh, we will be back in a couple of weeks with some more. Have fun. Bye-bye. God bless you.
0: So tell us a little bit about the Joyce Meyer segment and why you decided to do that one, Cruzy.
4: Basically, you know, she is the most famous, pretty much uh, Christianese-type teacher, Hmm. Um, and I think we needed to listen a bit to how she gets uh, theology because a lot of people actually just, unsuspectingly listen to her and they don't really seem to think further and and compare it to what the Bible says. Sure. you know. So I thought that would be a good idea just to listen to what she actually believes.
0: Mm. Yeah, so a suitable person for your discernment corner anyway. What did you think of it, Mm -hmm. Andy?
3: Yeah, you know, the interesting thing is that I always really considered her to be someone who was very encouraging. She seemed to Mm -hmm. get to more kind of, should we just say, psychological matters. So if you were going through a tough time, somehow she found Found a way to reach you, especially women. I have to say, especially women. I don't know how much the guys really do uh, respond to her, but for me personally, when I first used to listen to her, I used to think, well, finally, here's someone who can actually talk about practical things, and that's really what I considered her to be: as someone who got to the practical needs rather than someone who is, mm-hmm. you know, theologically correct. I don't know if that means anything, but that's kind of how I got drawn in to Joyce Meyer.
4: And the, th- the thing is, if you um, you know when you listen to that clip, um, if you really think about it, is it really Christian? Right. Um, now, I don't want to get myself into too much trouble by saying no, but um, I'm bordering on no because what she preaches is more, more Mormonism than anything else. Hmm. A bit of Mormonism a bit of uh, the Aryan um, heresy it's a it's a bit of a mixture of everything together and a bit of new age in sort of a christian package or package yeah. to make you know to make it and- christian
0: yeah, and going back to what Andy said, I think because she does reach many women sort of on that emotional level, I think that it can tend to get past the um, critical thinking area of people's minds and mm. where they might think, well, is this really something that's biblical? But I could see, mm. you know, the practical side of things. But then if that's the case, then really what she is is bordering on being a life coach when she's not actually preaching out of the a scriptures. Life coach. Would that be fair mm. to say? Do you reckon that's okay too? Andy, to say that? I,
3: I think it's a very fair thing to say because I, I kind mm. of saw her more as someone who just wanted to inspire people rather yeah. than someone mm. who wanted to be credible and theologically correct. And you use some really interesting examples there. That the whole idea of, you know, Jesus was the first born-again mm. person or mm. something yeah. like that, yeah. you know, those yeah. those kind of things are pretty yeah. really shocking when you really look at it. And for most people, that's probably just gone over their heads. They've never questioned it. They've just gone... Oh, well, it's Joyce. It's it's great. She's fantastic. That's what and most people sort of will tell you. She's wonderful.
4: <laughs> yeah, you you can trace it back. I think Kenneth Copeland started that stuff. Hmm. Um, yeah. Because a lot of what she says is almost word for word Ken, Kenneth Copeland. Oh, that's yes. interesting. Which yes. is quite interesting. Yeah, very
0: much, yeah, word of faith stuff, yeah.
4: Uh, and the thing is, if if she was a life coach, that would be fine and well, but then she shouldn't mix it with trying to teach theology because she doesn't know enough about theology to teach it, to be honest. I uh, agree with that. That's and that's just, that's just my personal view. And the other thing is, you know, even if she seems sincere and, you know, she encourages people… You just have to think back about Satan in the Garden of Eden when he said to Adam that, you know, you shall be as gods. I bet that was also very encouraging. Right. You know, so being encouraging is not necessarily just on itself a good thing.
3: Right. And I think even in terms of her. Life coaching skills. And I really don't... I'm not out to just diss her. So just so that I can put that out there, I really want people to go and examine even what she's teaching from a life skills perspective. Because if one does start to examine that and even try and line that up to the Word of God... Even that is wanting Mm. because she will talk about prosperity. She'll talk about all these things that you can achieve if you just do whatever and you uh, think positively, etc. Now, just take just those aspects that are, I would have put that into what, motivational skills or whatever you want to call that. If you just take those Mm. aspects and try and line that up to the word of God, it doesn't measure up. So not only is a theology wonky, but what she's teaching us that Christians should be. Um, You know, the Mm -hmm. victorious Christian all the time, that kind of, you know, emphasis on success, I just think like, well, where did she get that from? Because I also don't Mm. really read that a lot in the Word in terms of, you know, that's important to show that you're successful Um, because if you don't, you're letting God down somehow.
4: And there's one more thing, the difference between a good teacher and a bad teacher or a a good prophet or a false prophet or whatever. Mm-hmm. The one would actually be happy if you compare what he's saying to the Bible. If you think about Paul in you know, he was actually quite quite happy with the Bereans that they exactly, that they yeah. were holding what he was saying up to the Bible. Mm-hmm. Right. Now people like Joyce Meyer get very upset when when they get criticism. Mm-hmm. You know, and you and you can see it's a mindset difference there. Right. You know, I'm sure not, none of us can have our theology 100% correct all the time. I'm sure we're all learning. Sure, But it's a good thing if somebody corrects you. It's not a bad thing because you learn from that.
0: Yeah, no, because none of us know it all. <clears throat> That's exactly right. And mm-hmm. um, if we do put something out there, also if we put something out there in the public arena, I think it's fair enough that other believers would question us on it, you know, not sure. to... You know drive people into the ground or just run them down or to prove that you're right about something, but long as it's backed up by scripture, yeah. I think we should all be open to that and all, all remain teachable because when you shut that off, it's like you're saying, "Well, I've got it all now and I know it all, right. and mm, obviously okay. none of us do right.
4: yeah I'd be very disappointed if somebody didn't correct me if I was in error because it means I would stay in error mm. sure and, and I'd rather I, you know have somebody help me help me out and well, you know correct me.
0: Well, even if, it's, even if it's just asking the question, hey, what did you mean by that? You know, like, clarify right. this for me. What did you mean? Mm. It doesn't mm. have to be, a you know, the complete rundown. But, yeah, even just something simple as that, I think. But anyway, no, that, that's a good one. A uh, good flake.
3: <laughs> yeah, that was a nice chewy flake. I really enjoyed that. Well done, Cruzy.
0: Yeah, good one, Cruzy. Yes, very chewy. So, um, okay, so what are we moving on to next, Andy? What have we got on the list?
3: Well, actually, just on that note, you know, we are recording this on Easter Monday, so is it a good thing to say, what is it, Christos Anesti?
0: Indeed it is. Indeed. Yes. Yes, Christos Anesti. And I might just say Amen or Ni Amen. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, with our Greek spot, we're going to be talking about um, second-person plurals because I think I've asked you guys, and I'm going to ask you while we're recording, like in Australia when we when we have second person plural when we're talking to a group of people, in a colloquial sense we'll say use, Y-O-U-S-E, you know, like what are you guys doing or do you guys want a hamburger or do you guys want some chips with your roast kangaroo? And, and I really think that the um, Americans, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what their second plural is when they say y'all, but do you have anything in South Africa... Afrikaans, Africa, and Africanism, where you're talking to a group of people. Because in English, we only have you and you. Right. So, Australia, we have you and yous. <laughs>
3: yous. <laughs> no, I, I can't think of anything, actually. Can you, Cruzy? I can't think of anything. No we, fan.
4: No, no, we don't really have anything like that that I can recall, no.
3: So, I'm sorry, it's well, just the boring old you. You.
0: know all yeah. plural. Okay, so how do you actually say you guys in
4: Afrikaans then? Yellow Owens of Yellow Mensa. Mm, so
3: that's.
0: And
4: that's a, and, and
3: You guys. You and that was clicked to
4: everyone basically. Mm. Right, okay. Yes, <laughs> three right. people. Okay.
0: All right, And, you know, amongst our Aboriginal brothers and and sisters, and a lot of the wider community also uses this as well, like they will say um, you mob or us mob and them mob, you know, us mob, you mob and them mob. And we do do a bit of that in the wider community. I mean, I know I do. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll use the the term mob. It's not the American mob as in gangsters. It's like I think it comes from a mob of kangaroos, you know, us mob, you mob and them mob. Mm. And I will use that a a bit. And also... Yeah, for a group of people, and it can also show, you know, belonging to that particular group. And there was a pretty cool Aboriginal band going back a few years. That was what the the name of the band was. It was Us Mob. Us um, Mob. <laughs> yeah, which is great. I think it's great. But anyway, um, let's hit this flake before I um... play card. Simon, <laughs> Simon, do... Hello and welcome to the Greek Spot with GK. Kine Greek uses person number suffixes for personal pronouns and a large range of other types of words, not just pronouns. Now sometimes... These person number suffixes aren't always obvious when translated into English. Indeed, in English, we sometimes make up our own colloquial forms. For example, in Australia, when you're when talking to a group of people, in the second person plural, so talking to a group of people, we, we sometimes say use, so that's Y-O-U-S-E, use, like, what are yous doing this weekend? And I'm supposing, and please let me know if I'm wrong here, but when Americans say y'all... It's usually when addressing a group of people, as in a group of people in the second person plural. Now, we do these in informal settings. Um, for the most part, we wouldn't use these colloquial uh, forms of these words uh, in a more formal setting. I hope not. But, you know, sometimes they, they pop out, especially in our culture. Um, you, hear, you hear it from time to time. Now, Kine Greek has no such necessity to use such forms because it allows for first, second, and third singular forms and first, second, third plural forms by adding suffixes to the words so you know what's going on. And now, this is the point of our small spot here, and I'll demonstrate this from our verse in Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. Now, I'll read those, and I'll talk about it as we go through them. So Luke chapter twenty two thirty one, and this is what I read in my very very basic Kine Greek at the beginning of this segment. I read verse thirty one, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Now in this verse, when the Lord says you, Satan has asked for you, that you is a plural. In Kine Greek, you can recognize that because of the suffix attached to it. But it's not so easy to pick up in English. So we have here, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for, you, use, yal, or second person plural, that he may sift you as wheat. Okay, now I've just realized that in my first reading there, I read that from the New King James Version, and I wanted to actually read it from the King James Version and then contrast that with the NASB version. So, um, but they're both useful for one side purpose that I wanted to demonstrate here as well. In that, well, let's read the King James Version before I move on. Um, it says, so Luke 22:31, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. Now, in both the New King James and in the King James Version, twice there we have the pronoun you. But in the original New Testament Greek, um, it only actually one time refers to you. And the whole point of this exercise is to demonstrate from Luke twenty-two thirty-one that this you is a second person plural, so we, we've established that. But let's have a look at it in another version. Let's have a look at NASB, New American Standard Bible. It says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. So there you go. So the NASB only has the U once. Okay, so we can move on from that little side issue there. And let's go and look at Luke 22, verse 32. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And just for a bit more clarity, let's try that in the NASB. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when well, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, each time in this verse where it says either you or your, it's a second person singular form um, that that Jesus uses. So we have in verse 31 Jesus using the second person plural to indicate that he was talking to all of the disciples and then in verse 32 um, he uses second-person singulars and we know from that that he's talking directly to Peter about his brothers about the rest of the disciples now this is not a big thing because many commentaries and study Bibles will point this out about this portion of Scripture but it is possible to miss it with just a plain reading in the English because the pronoun you is plural So it refers to all of the disciples, as I said, in verse 31. But in verse 32, all of the second person pronouns are singular. So only Peter is being addressed. So there you have it, the Greek spot for this Flint Flake show on Like Flint Radio. Now, I only chose this very small topic just to demonstrate how useful a little bit of Greek can be. hope it encourages you to dig deeper into God's word. And until next time... I'd like to say thank you for your time. Thanks for listening. God bless you. And bye-bye now.
4: Okay, let's let's have a minute silence for the chocolate Easter bunnies that was eaten this (laughs) weekend.
0: (laughs) 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 Alrighty, so there we go. That's my flint flake for this episode. And I hope it's helpful for people. But anyway... We are now going to go to a small segment that I call, what did you do for Easter?
3: <laughs> I couldn't get it out.
0: I couldn't get it out without laughing. I just couldn't get it out. <laughs> Where
3: did that come from? What did you do for Easter?
0: <laughs> yeah, so what did you do for Easter? So, so, Andy, tell us what you did over Easter. What did you do?
3: Um, well, let's see. I did some editing on Friday. That was mm-hmm. most of the day, and I did have to do some script writing for something at work. And then on Saturday, I had to do recording of some radio adverts. So this mm-hmm. was a very, very interesting Easter weekend, very relaxed, yeah. as you can tell. And yeah. um, But on Sunday, Easter Sunday, which was really cool, I did actually get to spend a bit of time with family, and I really, really did enjoy that. So we had a great time. And, of course, today, it's me and the boys recording Flint Flakes. <laughs> so, <laughs> Coolio. There it is in a nutshell. <laughs> well,
0: we had mainly a family-oriented uh, long weekend because here, I, I, I guess it's the same everywhere, but here we had Friday until Monday as a long, long weekend, so... And Easter in Australia is the big time when most people go camping because it's the last time before it gets a bit too cool. In fact, it's the best time of the year to go camping because it's not too hot when you wake up in the morning with the canvas over your head and it's too hot. And, um, and it's not too cold at night, so a lot of people go camping. But uh, we stayed home and um, we had a... I'll have to say it in, in South African so you guys can understand, but we had a braai in the backyard um, uh-huh. on Saturday night. Excellent. And yeah, so we just had a mainly a family Easter and obviously lots and lots of good food, but also recognising what our Saviour had done for us um, and acknowledging that. Um, and not in a religious sense, but just in generally, you know, saying, well, yes, this is the time of year where we can discuss this sort of thing. And a good time of year for families and that to get together
4: as well. But um, what did you do, Cruzy? Me, I had a pretty quiet weekend, a uh, bit of editing and so on. And just for interest, I learned something new. I've got a question uh-huh. for you guys. Uh-oh. Yeah. What do you get when you pour boiling hot water down a rabbit's hole? Oh, hot cross bunnies. No. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> you just ruined Easter for us. You brought hot cross bunnies into our Easter discussion. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <laughs> Love it. Love <laughs> it. Oh, I just added. Sorry.
3: Now you've got to do oh, your boy. disclosure, crazy No bunnies were harmed during the making of this joke.
4: No, no, that's a given. We love bunnies.
0: No bunnies were harmed during the making of this episode of Light Flint Radio. There we go. Few <laughs> mosquitoes here, there, but no bunnies. That's right. Yes, swatting mosquitoes is fine. Anyways, I just wanted to find out what you guys did because we had a we had a good break, um, nice long break, and we had our our children here with us, and it was a good time. But I saw there was a, I think, about a five- or six-hour traffic jam for people trying to get back into Brisbane. It was bumper-to-bumper for five- or six hours from both the South Coast, the Gold Coast, and the North Coast, the Sunshine Coast. So um, it started around lunchtime, and it was bumper-to-bumper for hours. And some of those distances, you know, 80, 90 kilometres of just bumper-to-bumper, so maybe not that many, but at least 70 or 80. But there you go. So... If possible, let's move on to your flake, Andy.
3: Yeah, well, let's just introduce it. I mean, we've been reading, as you know, from Eusebius's History of the Church, From Christ to Constantine, and this time I wasn't sure which story to share. And when I finally did get down to recording it, I started with the story of Polycarp. Now, Polycarp is known as one of the early church fathers. He was a direct disciple of john and so so he knew the apostle john
0: and he was believed to be the last to have contact with any of the living apostles wasn't he
3: that's what i understood and so mm. those things that we could learn from his own life i guess we could actually just say that he probably in all likelihood learnt it from some of the first disciples and by the time the story starts he is at least 86 years old And we know that because he Mm. says that he's known the Lord at that stage for 86 years. And so he is at least that. So he could even be older than that. He could have been in his 90s, actually.
0: Yes, he could have set that date from his baptism. It is a remarkable story of his martyrdom. A couple of things to listen out for if you don't know the story of Polycarp, and especially as it's written up in Eusebius. But I like how, you know, you have that, um, the guy's name's Herod. And he's basically a copper, you know, for the mm-hmm. governor. And yeah. he tried to persuade Polycarp to call Caesar Lord because that's all they wanted him to do, right. to confess Caesar as Lord, didn't they? Yeah. That was that's the right. basics of it. Yeah. And I think they also say that Polycarp set his face, right? And right. and he, he had his famous, uh, his famous part of his speech was, 86 um, years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. Mm-hmm. How can I blaspheme my king and my saviour? And a lot of authors have recognized the, the similarities between the crucifixion of Jesus and the martyrdom of Polycarp. And a lot of them have written about that. So I can't talk too much about that. But one of the things that I do notice, because obviously, you know, the name of our show, Like Flint, and my blog is Face Like Flint. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it talks about Polycarp setting his face like Flint. But also in Luke 9, We read that Jesus set his face like flint for Jerusalem. You know, when his days were approaching for his ascension, he set his face for Jerusalem. And I think some do draw from that setting his face like flint, similar to the Isaiah 50 verse 7 verse. But it's a Semitic idiom that sort of indicates a determination to do something. and. I think we can learn something from both Jesus and Polycarp about being determined. And I think that determination should be for us to give a good account of ourselves before God. I think sometimes we do have to set our faces like Flint and just go for it and do what we know what we're uh, called to do. But the other thing we can learn from Polycarp is not to go out of our way And look for martyrdom because you'll note in the story how he went and hid a number of times. That's right. If it does come to the fact that any of us have to be martyred and there are Christian brothers and sisters being martyred in this day and age as we are recording this, okay? And so if that does come to us, we really must stand firm and set our face like Flint because Eusebius talks about Quintus, the guy who threw away his salvation, because when he realised what was going to happen to him, he he caved in didn't he and he, right. and he he called caesar lord and we yeah. can't do that we must never never do that and i'm sorry to take up so much time on your flakes. so if you've got no, any comments
4: cruzy or I, I was just going to say i read a story about i think it was polycop that, that was actually um writing about about john are they you know everyone was in anticipation to to listen to john preach and they would carry this old man onto the stage eventually And all he said was, believers love one another, Hmm. and they carried him off again. Wow. And that was sort of, uh, they were waiting for this long sermon or something, and that's all he said, and they carried him off again. I Hmm. think that was actually Polycarp that wrote about that. I I cannot remember where I read that.
3: That's very interesting.
4: And just for interest's sake, John was also the only apostle to die of old age. That's right. So he was was old at that stage.
3: Yeah, that's right. So... Here we go, the story of Polycarp, I hope it encourages you um, as much as it's been an encouragement to me. Antoninus Pius, after a reign of 22 years, was succeeded by his son Marcus Aurelius Verus in association with his brother Lucius. In this period, Asia was thrown into confusion by the most savage persecutions and Polycarp found fulfillment in martyrdom. As a written account of his end has come down to us, I am in duty bound to enshrine it in my pages. I refer to the letter sent on behalf of the church over which he himself had presided to inform the Christian communities everywhere of what happened to him. It begins thus. The Church of God at Smyrna to the Church of God at Philomelium and to all communities of the Holy Catholic Church everywhere. May mercy, peace and love from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ be yours in abundance. We are writing, brethren, to tell you the story of those who have suffered martyrdom, especially blessed Polycarp, who as though he had set his seal on it by his martyrdom, brought the persecution to an end. After this, before giving an account of Polycarp's death, they relate what happened to the other martyrs, vividly describing the heroism with which they faced their torments, to the amazement of the spectators on every side. Sometimes they were torn with scourges to the innermost veins and arteries, so that even the secret hidden parts of the body, the entrails and the internal organs were laid bare. Sometimes they were forced to lie on pointed seashells and sharp spikes, After going through every kind of punishment and torture, they were finally flung to the beasts as food. Special mention is made of the noble Germanicus, who by divine grace overcame his natural physical fear of death. The proconsul tried to dissuade him, stressing his youth and begging, as one still in the very prime of his life, to spare himself, but without a moment's hesitation, he drew the savage beast towards him, well-nigh forcing and goading it on the more quickly to escape from their wicked, lawless life. After his glorious death, the whole crowd was so astounded by the heroism of God's beloved martyr and the courage of Christian people everywhere that a shout went up from all sides, Away with the godless! Fetch Polycarp! The uproar that followed these shouts was so tremendous that a man named Quintus, newly arrived from Phrygia, on seeing the beast and the threatened torments to follow, broke down completely and ended by throwing away his salvation. It is plain from the text of the letter I have quoted, that along with others this man dashed towards the tribunal with too much haste and without due thought. But when seized he gave everyone clear proof that it is fatal to risk such ventures in a reckless and thoughtless spirit. So ends the story of these men. As for the wonderful Polycarp, when he heard the news, he remained unperturbed, preserving a firm and unshakable demeanour, and wished to stay on in the city. But when his friends begged and besought him to make good his escape, he was persuaded to go as far as a farm only a little distance away. There he remained with a few companions, devoting himself night and day to constant prayer to the Lord. Three nights before his arrest, while at prayer, he saw in a trance the pillow under his head burst into flames and burn to a cinder. He awoke at once and interpreted the vision to those present, opening the book of things to come, and leaving his friends in no doubt that for Christ's sake he was to depart this life by fire. As the efforts of his pursuers went on relentlessly, the love and devotion of the brethren compelled him to move on to yet another farm. There he was soon overtaken. Two of the farm servants were seized, and under torture one of them revealed Polycarp's quarters. Late in the evening they arrived and found him in bed upstairs. He might easily have moved to another house, but he had refused, saying, God's will be done indeed when he heard that they had come the account informs us he came down and talked to them in the most cheerful and gentle manner so that never having seen him before they could hardly believe their eyes when confronted with his advanced years and dignified confident bearing why they wondered was there such anxiety to arrest an old man of this kind He, meanwhile, ordered the table to be laid for them immediately and invited them to eat as much as they liked, asking in return a single hour in which he could pray unmolested. Leave being given, he stood up and prayed full of the grace of the Lord to the amazement of those who were present and heard him pray, many of them indeed distressed now by the coming destruction of an old man so dignified and so godlike." From that point the letter tells us the rest of the story as follows. At last he ended his prayer, and the hour for departure had come. So they set him on an ass and brought him to the city. He was met by Herod, the chief of police, and his father Nicetes, who after transferring him to their carriage sat beside him and tried persuasion. What harm is there in saying, Lord Caesar, and sacrificing? You will be safe then. At first he made no answer, but when they persisted he replied, I have no intention of taking your advice. Persuasion having failed, they turned to threats and put him down so hurriedly that in leaving the carriage he scraped his shin. But without even looking round as if nothing had happened, he set off happily at a swinging pace for the stadium. There the noise was so deafening that many could not hear at all. But as Polycarp came into the arena, a voice from heaven came to him. Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw the speaker, but many of our people heard the voice. His introduction was followed by a tremendous roar. As the news went round, Polycarp has been arrested. At length, when he stepped forward, he was asked by the proconsul if he was really Polycarp. He said yes. The proconsul urged him to deny the charge. Respect your years, he exclaimed, adding similar appeals regularly made on such occasions. Swear by Caesar's fortune, change your attitude, say away with the godless. But Polycarp, with his face set, looked at all the crowd in the stadium and waved his hand towards them, sighed, looked up to heaven, and cried, away with the godless. The governor pressed him further, Swear, and I will set you free. Execrate Christ! For eighty-six years, replied Polycarp, I have been his servant, and he has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king, who saved me? When the other persisted, Swear by Caesar's fortune, Polycarp retorted, If you imagine that I will swear by Caesar's fortune, as you put it, pretending not to know who I am, I will tell you plainly, I am a Christian. If you wish to study the Christian doctrine, choose a day and you shall hear it. The proconsul replied, Convince the people. With you, rejoined Polycarp, I think it proper to discuss these things, for we have been taught to render as due to rulers and powers ordained by God such honor as casts no stain on us. To the people, I do not feel it my duty to make any defense. I have wild beasts, said the proconsul. I shall throw you to them if you don't change your attitude. Call them, replied the old man. We cannot change our attitude if it means a change from better to worse. But it is a splendid thing to change from cruelty to justice. If you make light of the beasts, retorted the governor, I'll have you destroyed by fire, unless you change your attitude. Polycarp answered, The fire you threaten burns for a time, and it is soon extinguished, but there is a fire you know nothing about, the fire of the judgment to come, and of eternal punishment, the fire reserved for the ungodly. But why do you hesitate? Do what you want. As he said this, and much besides, he was filled with courage and joy, and his features were full of grace. So that not only did he not wilt in alarm at the things said to him, but on the contrary, the proconsul was amazed and sent the crier to stand in the middle of the arena and announce three times, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. At this announcement, the whole mass of Spinaeans, Gentiles and Jews alike, Boiled with anger, and shouted at the tops of their voices, This fellow is the teacher of Asia, the father of the Christians, the destroyer of our gods, who teaches numbers of people not to sacrifice or even worship. So saying, they loudly demanded that the Asiarch Philip should set a lion on Polycarp. He objected, saying this would be illegal, as he had closed the sports. Then a shout went up from every throat that Polycarp must be burnt alive. For it was inevitable that the vision which appeared to him about the pillow should be fulfilled. He had seen it burning as he prayed, and turning to the faithful with him said prophetically, I must be burnt alive. The rest followed in less time than it takes to describe The crowds rushed to collect logs and faggots from workshop and public baths, the Jews as usual, joining in with more enthusiasm than anyone. When the pyre was ready, he took off all his outer garments, loosened his belt, and even tried to remove his shoes, though not used to doing this because each of the faithful strove at all times to be the first to touch his person. Even before his hair turned grey, he had been honoured in every way because of his virtuous life. There was no hesitation now. The instruments being prepared for the pyre were put around him. But when they were going to nail him too, he cried, Leave me as I am. He who enables me to endure the fire will enable me, even if you don't secure me with nails, to remain on the pyre without shrinking. So they bound him without nailing him. He put his hands behind him and was bound like a noble ram presented from a great flock as a whole burnt offering acceptable to God Almighty. Then he prayed, O Father of thy beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know thee, the God of angels and powers and all creation, and of the whole family of the righteous who live in thy presence, I bless thee for counting me worthy of this day and hour, that in the number of the martyrs I may partake of Christ's cup, to the resurrection of eternal life of both soul and body, in the imperishability that is the gift of the Holy Ghost. Among them may I be received into thy presence today, a rich and acceptable sacrifice, as thou hast prepared it beforehand, foreshadowing it and fulfilling it. Thou God of truth that canst not lie. Therefore, for every cause I praise thee, I bless thee, I glorify thee, Through the eternal High Priest, Jesus Christ, thy beloved Son, through whom and with whom in the Holy Ghost glory be to thee, both now and in the ages to come. Amen. When he had offered up the Amen and completed his prayer, the men in charge lit the fire, and a great flame shot up. Then we saw a marvelous sight, we who were privileged to see it and were spared to tell the others what happened. The fire took the shape of a vaulted room, like a ship's sail filled with wind, and made a wall around the martyr's body, which was in the middle, not like burning flesh, but like gold and silver, refined in a furnace. Indeed, we were conscious of a wonderful fragrance, like a breath of frankincense, or some other costly spice. At last, seeing that the body could not be consumed by the fire, The lawless people summoned a confector to come and drive home his sword. When he did so, there came out a stream of blood that quenched the fire, so that the whole crowd was astonished at the difference between the unbelievers and the elect. To the elect belonged this man, the most wonderful apostolic and prophetic teacher of our time, for every word that he uttered was and shall be
4: fulfilled. Well, that was fun, guys. Don't forget to join us on Facebook. Our group's name is Future Quake Southern Hemisphere. Search for us there and come join us and come chat to us. Until next time, cheerio.
3: Thank you for joining us. We hope you've enjoyed our show. You can find us on the web at www.lightflintradio.com. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at mail at lightflintradio.com. That's M-A-I-L at lightflintradio.com.
4: Chatting to you guys again before I say goodbye, Karth, behave yourself. Yeah. <laughs> That's never going to happen. See you later, Cruzy. Okay, lekker dag jullie, fantastisch gaan, and I hope jullie eten lekker show. Tot ziens. <laughs>
3: Bye, dankie. Tot ziens.